Welcome to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Greenwood, Mississippi. We are a community of Christians that exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ and influence the Delta for the glory of God. More information about Westminster can be found at www.wpcgreenwood.org. Well, this summer we are taking a summer vacation in our, our series, and we're going on road trips. Uh, we're going to the beach, to the lake, uh, maybe even to a, a stream or a river. And as we'll see today, we're even going to the mountains. You know, in Scripture, when it came time for God to reveal something to His people, not always, but, but often it was on a mountain. Remember, it was on a mountain that Abraham learned that God is the one who graciously and sacrificially provides. Right? It was on a mountain where God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses and stating that this is how humans flourish best. It was on a mountain that God's Shekinah glory descended into the temple. It was on a mountain that Jesus delivered the greatest sermon ever preached in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it was on a mountain that God pulled back the curtain and to, to show us the absolute glory of Jesus in the transfiguration. And then it was on the side or in the side of a mountain in a cave that God gave the Apostle John a vision of the beautiful future of God's people. And John recorded it so that we could read it and be filled with hope in the book of Revelation. So God revealed himself so much from on mountains that by the time Psalm 121 came around, mountain or hill had become this metaphor uh, for God's help. And so uh, it's, I will lift up my eyes to the hills, right? From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord. And it's a good reminder of the use of metaphor, right? That it's not, it's not about the mountains, you know, that we can lift our eyes up to the hills until we get a creek in our neck. It's about God, right? It's about lifting our eyes to the, to the one who actually does help us. I mentioned this before, but so I've been told that that's why the front of our church is designed as it is. Uh, you know, in the Flatland Delta, uh, they brought a lot of dirt in and they landformed this lot so that if you uh, park your car in the parking lot, uh, even though if it's only just, it's a slight incline, but it is an intentional incline. You park your car and you have to walk mildly uphill, lifting your eyes up, hoping that maybe Psalm 121 comes to mind as you walk into worship, that we will lift our eyes up uh, from where our help comes from. So, because God revealed himself so much in the mountains, we're going to spend the next three weeks uh, in the mountains. Uh, and this morning, we come to one of the most famous things God ever did uh, in the mountains, uh, we're going to the mountains with Elijah to see what God taught us from Mount Carmel, uh, which brings us to God's Word this morning. Long passage, but this is, man, this is a humdinger uh, of, a, of a, an event. So 1 Kings 18, 16 through 40, this is God's Word. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the bells. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. 
So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the Lord did not answer him, and, and the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. So let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, and, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it's well spoken, let's do it. So then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And so they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. There's no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud, and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he, he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of Yahweh. And he made a trench about the altar as great as could, as could contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid the bull on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and he said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. Yahweh is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let, no, let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, may you bless us all as we sit under this 
reading and now teaching from your word. Uh, Lord, may you be with the one who teaches, uh, for he, I am a, a sinner, I'm weak. Um, may you give me strength, may you give all of us strength uh, to hear. We ask this in Christ. Amen. Well, that's some story, huh? Some story. And some might even think, oh, <laughs> I always love a good story from history. But what, what could God defeating these prophets of Baal possibly have to do with me or with us today? Well, a heck of a lot more than you think. But before we, we get to the takeaways, for this passage to pop like it would have for the ancient people of Israel, it's probably a good idea to do a little background on, on Baal. Who is this Baal character? And, and why was Israel always attracted to worship in Baal? It's a good question. All right, so ancient Canaanites, as we already established a few weeks ago, ancient Canaanites believed, they believed in all kinds of gods. And remember, they had an entire pantheon of gods in which El was their big dog, the, the, boss, the boss god. And, and according to Canaanite mythology, and by the way, before there were like Marvel movies and origin stories, there was Canaanite mythology because it reads straight up like a comic book. The big dog god El had a baby. And he called baby El, they called him Baal. And Baal grew up, and of course, as they all do, Baal had daddy issues. And not only, he got, decided, I'm going to beat my dad up. And so he overpowered his dad, El, but he also whipped like every other guy. He's always fighting gods. He beat every one of them up. And so, according to the Canaanite comic books, Baal became so strong that in a culture that worshipped many, many gods, Baal kind of became their one-stop shop god. Storm god, Baal. Uh, sun god, Baal. Fertility god, you guessed it, Baal. He just, he covered them all. Okay, that's, that's who Baal was, but okay, why was everyone, even Israel, so attracted to this Baal character? And you might think, look, if I lived back then, I wouldn't have worshipped Baal. I would have been faithful to Yahweh. But look, before you say that, can I just say, listen to their context, because this hits a little closer to home than we may think. During Elijah's time, Baal was the main god of the Phoenicians. And why does that matter? Well, Jezebel was a Phoenician princess who married the king of the northern kingdom of Israel named Ahab. And she was so devoted to her god, Baal, that she not only worshipped Baal and not only evangelized other people to worship Baal, but she used her power of influence to force, uh, to, to force others to worship what she worshipped. And so similar to how the Soviet Union and other regimes have established, like the people in power have established what is and is not politically correct, <laughs> what will and will not get you ahead in society. Just like that under Jezebel, if you want it to be on the up and up, uh, or if you just want it, if you're kind of more passive, you just want to kind of go along to get along, the path of least resistance, just, just worship Baal, okay? Just, just worship it. The God of the establishment. So by this time, the government saw people who were faithful to Yahweh as trouble. Do you notice Elijah was called the troubler of Israel? All right. I hope that you, you can see some parallels between 1 Kings 18 and like today in America. 
And this isn't a call to Christian nationalism and to print out the picture of the president or Ronald Reagan and put it on your refrigerator and pray to Ronald every day. Um, But this is a call to believers to open our eyes, to discern the times, to be aware of the bells that are in our culture. As believers, we know this, we are resident aliens. And, And so pay attention always to what those in power are telling us to champion and telling us to accept. And even pay attention, even on social media, to what is being virtue signaled. Because as sure as sparks fly upward, there's a very real temptation to take on the gods of culture. Always a temptation to do that. You know, Mississippi's own John Perkins wrote, I know most Americans today do not worship Baal, but when I look at the church in America, I fear that we all have our own bells that demand our worship. I see so many people bowing down before prosperity theology and the idea that God just wants us to be wealthy and happy. And then John Perkins said, I see people entrapped by the isms, racism, sexism, ageism, classism, and so many others that divide our church, choosing first to obey and revere these divisive systems rather than the God who has called us to be reconciled to one another and to him in Christ. So it's what my old football coach used to tell the linebackers. If you're a linebacker, you better play with your head on a swivel, right? You're always looking around. This whole Jezebel cultural spiral into decay, into idolatry thing, like it didn't happen overnight, right? It it took years. And the Israelites who first rejected Baal, who said, look, me and my house, we, we serve Yahweh. Thank you very much. We're not getting involved in all this Baal stuff. Over time, just like the frog in the kettle, became less and less offended by the whole idea. Um, the more Baal was shoved in their face, the less they eh, okay, maybe Baal isn't so bad. Until the point that they said, you know, this, this whole Baal thing, I, if this means getting my kids ahead, if this means getting my family ahead, it might be easier if we just kind of go with the flow. It sure will be easier if we did what everyone else was doing. Well, what Jezebel did thousands of years ago is still alive and well in our culture today. Like, tell me not that there is, there is social and political pressures to, quote, be on the right side of history this time. Come on, Christians, be on the right side of history this time. Well, could we say, or could you say, you know, I think I'd rather follow Jesus. I think I'd rather follow Jesus. That is being on the right side of history. But not only that, Baal worship was also super relevant, like insanely relevant. As Ralph Davis said, Baal promised to scratch where they existentially itched. You know, as we, we just learned, Baal was their storm god, their fertility god, which to them meant, like, he set the planting and harvest weather. You need rain on your crops, Baal's your guy. You need sun, Baal's your guy. He was the one who gave grain and oil and wine. He's the one who healed the sick. He's the one who ensured that you would have children. I mean, imagine, really. Imagine being an ancient Israelite farmer. And you're a little anxious about your crop getting rain and getting the weather it needs to grow. And you're kind of worried about your sheep giving birth. And you and your spouse want to have kids. And everyone else around you, all your other friends are crying out to Baal. And so you say, you know, Baal promises those promises seem to kind of check all the boxes that I have and so in order to get ahead maybe we could use them just a little bit in this Yahweh plus Baal 
kind of enters in, and just like that, idolatry creeps. So that's Baal. Okay. And, and by the way, knowing this really helps us better understand a good deal of the Old Testament, because as you read through the Old Testament, there are all these passages about God sending forth rain, and God riding the storms, and God bringing forth lightning. You know, those are intentional Right? Because that is the, the ancient equivalent of these, these mic drop moments by God, of God saying, hey, it ain't Baal who rides the storm. It ain't Baal who brings the rain. In the words of Taylor Swift, all right, it's, it's me. Hi. I, I'm, I'm the one. I'm the storm God. It's me. So a lot of that is a polemic against false gods to say, look, stop it with your Baal stuff. Yahweh's your guy. And so it's into that culture where it's very tempting to worship Baal. God revealed several things that we need to remember today from the mountain. So first, on the mountain we see the reality of discipleship. Open your eyes. Reality of discipleship. Elijah set the stage by asking the biggest question of our lives. And it's not, where are you going to go to college? It's not, what career are you going to have? It's not even, who are you going to marry? Now, the biggest question is, who or what are you going to worship? And we are worshipers. As Bob Dylan saying, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You might like to gamble. You might like to dance. You might be the heavyweight champion of the world. You might be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. David Foster Wallace was a high-profile writer and a, a non-believer who was asked to give a college commencement address, and he said this. He said, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice you get is what to worship. All right. Well, that's what Elijah said. Hey, how long are you going to go limping? between two opinions and two options. How long are you going to go limping? If the, if the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is, then follow him. I mean, Elijah cuts through all the chatter to remind us that this isn't like an academic question, that theology leads to discipleship. It leads to following. Worship leads to following. He, he's saying, in, look, in just a second, y'all are all going to know that Yahweh is God, but Yahweh isn't an ideal that you think about, but he's a king that you submit to and you spend the rest of your life following. And so, are you following Jesus day by day? I know I'm speaking to the choir, but are you bending the knee to his lordship? You know, is, is church just, you come here for like the God contest and maybe you hear hopefully a somewhat good speech, um, learn a couple things, but then you go back limping between your various idols, you know, you limp to your kids, you limp to sports, you limp to beauty, you limp to sex appeal, you limp to finances, you just limp around. But the call is discipleship. To whatever we worship, we follow. And so if we're following, let's follow Yahweh. Let's follow Christ. Second, we see a reminder of mundane faithfulness. I love this, mundane faithfulness. You know, the Bible tells us that we are saved by faith, right? Faith alone. Faith in Jesus. However, once we are saved, that, that true faith is never alone, right? 
True faith always produces fruit. It produces activity in our lives, which we could call faithfulness. It flows out of us. And so I grew up in the, the Jesus freak, radical, don't waste your life, do hard things period of Christianity. So I grew up thinking, of course, like to heck with all this, like doing little things with great love. But you've got to do great things and grand gestures for the kingdom. Well, it turns out, I'm in my 40s now and just tired all the time. It turns out that that just isn't healthy, nor is it reality. And that's why Joseph read that, that longer passage this morning uh, about Obadiah, because in this one chapter of the Bible, we see two, like two beautiful examples of faithfulness to God. You know, Elijah's ministry, oh, it's public, and it is charismatic, and it's in your face. He is obviously doing things for the Lord. But you know, so did Obadiah. Because of his love for the Lord, he didn't bow to Jezebel. Imagine, imagine just the courage to, like, he's working for Jezebel, but he didn't bow to Jezebel. By faith, he became a dissident, and he leveraged his resources to quietly, secretly hide away and care for 100 prophets of Yahweh. You know, this is God reminding us that faithfulness comes in different flavors, doesn't it? Sometimes it's people who you don't even, you don't even know that they're doing these wonderful things for the Lord by faith. You know, sometimes it is in your face, but sometimes it's just the simple subversion to the fallen culture. <laughs> Ralph Davis said, I love this, he said, We are not called to great works, but to good works. Not to flamboyant ministry, but to faithful ministry. Not to be dashing only to be devoted, a devoted servant. So it's mundane faithfulness. What are you doing because you are a follower? Third, this is beautiful. God wants us to see that he is unstoppable. You can't stop him. You can't count him out. Do y'all remember, those of you who watch college football, uh, do y'all remember a few years, several years ago when Baker Mayfield planted Oklahoma's flag, or he tried to, uh, planted Oklahoma's flag at midfield, 50-yard line of Ohio State Stadium. You all remember that? Um, it, and it was like all the football team had gone and the band was the only one that was fighting for Ohio State. Um, it, it was his way of saying, look, I know this is y'all's stadium, but Oklahoma owns the stadium now. All right. Did you notice this whole Mount Carmel location? This is Elijah's idea. And, and he was very intentional of picking this location. Why? Because during this period, do you know what they called Mount Carmel? They didn't call it Mount Carmel. That's not what they called it then. They called it the Mountain of Baal. This is Baal's mountain. And so this was sacred ground to Baal. And otherwise, Elijah says, look, let, let's go to your home field. You can have home court advantage. And when Yahweh whips you on your own turf, we're planting Yahweh's flag on the fifty. And so what we find here is geography doesn't confine God. That he's the God of the universe. Nor do numbers. Right? 850 pagan prophets against one prophet of, of Yahweh. Can you imagine what the news today would say, the pollsters would say about this? I mean, Yahweh, I mean, Elijah is a fool. But God's power has never depended on how many cheerleaders he has. Do you ever feel alone as a, as a Christian? Do you ever feel like you're the only one? Like God's, God has never been dependent on how many cheerleaders he has. No matter the numbers, if it's one million against one, God is never the underdog. Nor, this is another beautiful thing, nor is God manipulated. 
You know, Elijah let the pagan prophets go first, but of course nothing happened. And in their mythology, their, their views of, of Baal, Baal was almost always gone. Like that's when, you know, you need rain, but it doesn't rain. <laughs> He's probably on a trip. I mean, we can't blame Baal. And, and so he was always on a journey or he was hanging out with his sister or going hunting. It's this weird thing. And so Elijah starts taunting them. Like maybe y'all need to wake Baal up. Or, or maybe he's, he's relieving himself in the bathroom. Maybe that's where he is. You know, when you make a God in your own image, that's what that God kind of becomes. Well, of course he goes to the bathroom, and of course he takes trips. But what about the God who's not made in our image, but the God who makes us in his image? It's different. And so in, in attempts to get Bell's attention, uh, his prophets go into like religious activity overdrive. They cried out and they raved, they hooped, they hollered. They even got to the point of cutting themselves. Surely cutting themselves would get Bell's attention. They cut themselves to the point that they're, I mean, they're gushing blood. <laughs> Are you not entertained, Bell? Like, can we have your attention, please? And, you know, we can read this and think, how archaic and how sad. These prophets, they just don't get it. And yet we may not be prophets of Baal, but how easy is it for us to slip into thinking like one? Surely if we do more, if we try harder, if we hoop and holler loud enough, we can impress God, right? That if we kick our religious activity into overdrive, we can stir God up to bless us. And that's what, that what Ralph Davis calls evangelical Baalism. It's why so many Christians are worn out. So please hear the gospel God doesn't give favor because of what we do. He gives favor because of what Jesus did. Okay? But we're going to get to that in just a second. Fourth, God reminds us that he is holy. That God is holy, y'all. You know, after pouring water on the sacrifice, which is, that's pretty crazy, all Elijah, you know, he didn't hoop and holler. He didn't sign up to volunteer at VBS. All Elijah did was pray, and fire fell. Fire, because God's holy, and we're not. You know, so sinful are we that in order to be with God, we first have to be cleansed, atoned. And, and this story <clears throat> excuse me, should sober us up, because at the very end, we see the consequences of sin. You know, this is like such a beautiful passage, and then we get to the end, it's like, oh, here we go. It's that whole, like, immoral God-killing things. Uh, People argue that, you know, Elijah killing these prophets is so barbaric, so immoral. But we have to see that this wasn't a personal vendetta. No, this was Elijah carrying out the consequences of those who woo people away from God to other gods. I mean, this was capital punishment under the law of the land. This was Old Testament law. And so what's, what's Mr. That, that punishment is nothing compared to the eternal consequences of our own sin and rebellion. And sometimes I think we've lost touch with how holy other our God is. You know, throughout the Bible, anyone who ever came into contact with God was undone. Like, like you were on your face and you were never the same again. To this, Annie Dillard makes a good point. I think we've shared this before, but Annie Dillard said, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. 
Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does not one believe a word of it? The churches today are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. She says it's madness to wear lady straw hats, velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. It's God's holiness. God's holiness. But then fifth and finally, God doesn't leave us in our sin. We also see grace. Did you catch it in Elijah's prayer, the purpose of this whole event, this whole, this whole thing? Elijah prayed that we would know that the Lord is God and that God would turn our hearts back to him. It was, not about God. It was never about God flexing on some man-made God. No, this was about God pursuing his people. Um, you know, fire not only reveals God's holiness, but it also signifies acceptance. Remember when the fire fell in the tabernacle or the temple? That was God's way of saying, yes. Like, this is the way back. This is the way. This is good. Well, Elijah, in repairing the altar, was reminding them that God had made a way for them to come back. You know, because of our sin, we are, of course, this week, seeing that submarine implode, you know, naturally we are trapped in the deep dark. Like naturally we're trapped and the oxygen is running out, we will all die. We are in deep need and unless someone outside of us, unless God comes and brings us back up to the surface and delivers us from that, we die. And at the altar, that's what happened. At the altar here, did you notice that the fire didn't fall on them? Where did the fire fall? The fire fell on the bull, and in that moment, they saw that they had experienced grace. And it was not by religious activity, but it was by grace that they returned to the Lord. Okay. All right, well, what about now? We don't have an old rugged altar anymore, do we? I know we have something better. Like, okay, on the cross, Jesus took the fire. The fire for all of your little shenanigans, all of my sin. He took that fire, and God was satisfied. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. It was by grace. And it is that that sets our hearts on fire. By seeing that, our hearts are turned back to God. And so Westminster, God still desires to have the hearts of his children back. Even if, they, even if we are just eaten up with the bells of our culture, He's not going to stop until all of his people are found and forgiven and back home with him. That is the gospel. Amen? And let me pray for us. Father, there's, I'll, I'll just confess, sometimes I still don't think we get it. Um, we hear the, the good news and we're like, okay, well, what's for lunch? And ho-hum. Father, may we join the songwriter in saying and marveling in your overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love to your people. Oh, it chases us down, fights till we're found, leaves the 99. We couldn't earn it. We don't deserve it. Still, God, 
you gave yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Amen. Hi, Richard Owens here. I just wanted to take a second to say thank you for listening to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church. Our prayer is that the Lord would use this message to encourage you in the gospel and that you would find Jesus to be more beautiful than you ever, ever imagined. If you'd like to find out more about who Jesus is or more about our church, I invite you to visit our website at wpcgreenwood.org. God bless.